and I heard Tim Keller say this, I think it's so true. You know, what we sing stays with us better than what you hear uh, in, a, in a speech or a sermon. And so it's kind of humbling for those of us who preach to realize that really you're going to get more out of the final song than you are on this whole sermon. So, uh, but what we're, what we're taking up tonight is the, the, the ubiquity of God. I know we, we make a joke about my fondness for the word ubiquity, but this is actually something that theologians talk about, the ubiquity of God. And, and, and I'm going to get to Psalm 139 in a moment, but I want to start out by reading um, a, a portion of Jeremiah chapter 23. And uh, Jeremiah says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God who is far off? Now, some of these scripture passages will be uh, in your in your bulletin. I put an outline in the in the bulletin. You can follow that along. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God who is far off? There are those people who believe in a creator God, but a God who decided that he would just fling his creation out into the cosmos and let it run down. Those are referred to as deists. And many of our founding fathers were actually deists, um, maybe soft deists, but deists nonetheless. And he goes on and says, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Well, if those were deists, these are pantheists, the people uh, or the people who believe that that God is a bit of a bumbling God. Um, it's not so much monotheists who believe this, but these are pantheists, for instance, uh, the Greek gods. They were kind of, well, they were kind of very human. Uh, they made big mistakes. They could go looking for something and not find it. And, and their, their gods were not really very godlike. Um, but, of course, our God is a God who uh, sees in hiding places. And then finally, uh, that, so we have deism and pantheism. And now do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. That is Christian theism. Christian theism. So we have a, a statement of deism, a statement of pantheism, and a statement of Christian deism. Okay, so... We'll expand on that in a minute, but I want to start out by asking you this question. Who remembers who was the first man in space? Do you remember the man's name? So I heard it from somebody. Okay, let's see. I heard Yuri, I, Yuri Gagarin. Who said that? <laughs> you know what? This, this always gets me in trouble. One time I said, I said, I will give the keys to my car if someone could answer this question. And, and Annie answered that question. And it was in my, I had put it in the outline. I forgot that it was in my outline. So I offered the keys to her car. She graciously turned me down, which is good because it's a long walk home. Okay. Actually, uh, Yuri Gagarin is widely credited with being the first man in space. Um, 
Yuri Gagarin was a Russian test pilot, uh, become a cosmonaut, and as a 27-year-old major in the Soviet Air Force, Gagarin became the first man in space on April the 12th of 1961. Now, there's an asterisk, much like Roger Maris's asterisk next to his record. Um, the, there's an international space uh, agency that actually sanctions such claims as those. And in, in order, according to the International Space, this in, uh, international space Agency, in order for someone to make such a claim, the rule is that the space traveler must touch down with him or her vehicle. In 1971, it was leaked that the Soviet, the Soviet PR apparatus had lied. The Soviet spacecraft had no provision for a soft landing, so Gagarin had to parachute out of his capsule in order to survive the landing. That means that technically, someone over here got this one right, that Alan Shepard was actually, according to the International Space Agency, the first man in space. But apparently, that was not the only lie that the thing that the Soviets lied about concerning Gagarin. According to the official Soviet propaganda machine, upon his return, Gagarin said, you remember this? I went up to space, but I didn't encounter God. And that would be entirely consistent with the Soviet apparatus official position. They are officially and dogmatically atheists. The communist system depends on atheism, so it is understandable, though inexcusable, for a lie to uh, emerge and on such matters. However, according to a Russian journalist and close friend of Yuri Gagarin, Anton Pervushkin, I'm not very good at Russian, Pervushkin said, Gagarin was a true Christian who never gave up, uh, never gave up his faith, a true believer. In his book, 180 Minutes That Changed the World, Pervushkin confirmed that he had never uttered the infamous phrase of never having seen God in space, and that, in fact, Gagarin had a deep Christian faith. General Vabutin Petrov, a personal friend of Gagarin and professor at the uh, Russian Air Force Academy, also disagreed with the official party line. He said, Gagarin was a baptized and faithful member throughout all of his life. He always confessed God wherever he was provoked and no matter where he was. And then in 2007, Maria Binieri wrote an article entitled, Yuri Gagarin the Christian. In point of fact, it was Khrushchev who said, those famous words. And it was during a meeting of the Communist Central Committee who had, an, uh, uh, who had a vested interest in promoting these atheistic worldviews. Khrushchev, in that meeting, mockingly said, why didn't you step on the brakes in front of God? Here is Gagarin, who flew up to space, and yet even he didn't see God anywhere. So said Nikita Khrushchev. In fact, Gagarin actually said, an astronaut cannot be suspended in space and do not have God in his mind and his heart. 
But that idea that God lives up in the unreachable heavens, space is actually a, a, a common view of God and his being. Uh, commonly held by ag- agnostics, mockingly held by atheists, who actually don't even have a, a category for God. I was um, playing pickleball one time, and a man came up to me and said, you're a pastor, and I said, yes. And he said, I'm an atheist, and I would like to talk to you about God. I was confused and excited at the same time. And I, when I met with him, I said, I'm curious to know that you want to talk about something that you don't even have a category for. But that led to many, uh, many conversations. And eventually he started reading his Bible. Um, he passed away without me knowing whether or not he made a true profession of faith. But uh, he turned out to be quite a good friend. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm sad to say that I believe that many Christians hold this uh, so-called view of God, that he lived out in the heavens and didn't ha- doesn't have much contact with us. But I'm happy to say today that one day I will see Yuri Gagarin in heaven. But Khrushchev, Khrushchev's expressed view is sadly in conflict with the actual ubiquity of God. And this evening I hope to set the record straight on the biblical view of God's uh, everywhereness, his ubiquity, or as uh, Greg said a couple weeks ago, the omnipresence of God. And the text I selected uh, as the backbone of this subject in this passage, I've read it, I read a few minutes ago. It's Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God who is far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Uh, uh, do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? The ubiquity of God, or it's another omni, the omnipresence of God, is another one of God's incommunicable attributes. Greg mentioned this, uh, I think it was last week. He mentioned that COVID is a communicable condition, a communicable disease. But a broken arm is not a communicable disease. The flu is a communicable disease, but gray hair is not a communicable, well, I suppose it is, but, uh, but, but um, you get the idea, what is communicable and incommunicable. Uh, love is one of God's communicable attributes. Omnipotence is one of God's incommunicable attributes. Knowledge and holiness are communicable attributes, but Ubiquity is an incommunicable attribute. Uh, no one of us is everywhere at the same time. And that is uh, the first point that I'd like to make here this evening, is that God is everywhere. We cannot hide from his presence. In that passage that uh, I read a little earlier, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah and God 
through the mouth of Jeremiah, is saying that there is not a place in the universe where God is not. I want to say that again because I know it's confusing. There's not a place in the universe where God is not. That is a double negative. And Miss LaRue, who is my eighth grade grammar teacher, would be having a fit uh, for me using a double negative. But by using my incorrect grammar, I'm emphasizing my point that God is indeed near everywhere we are to travel. Uh, About 36 years ago, uh, I had owned and operated with my brothers a retail store in the Pavilion Shopping Center in Naples. Just as an aside, and for the record, it was a terrible business. (laughs) Um, Next door was a shoe store. It was run by a man by the name of Ben Yoakum. Now, about 23 years ago, our extended family took a cruise to Alaska. We flew into Fairbanks, and we took a train to to Denali, and then to Anchorage and Seward, and then we went down the inland passageway to Vancouver. And on the plane to Fairbanks, and then on the train to Anchorage, through Denali, and then on the bus to Seward, then on the ship to Vancouver, completely unbeknownst to me, at least his planning of it, was Ben Yoakum, who had the store next to me. He was not actually stalking me, but one might draw the conclusion that Ben Yoakum was ubiquitous, because everywhere everywhere I turned around, there was Ben Yoakum. It's another small world story, and I'm just amazed at how many of those. I don't know if everybody bumps into those. I I have like a a dozen small world stories. But here's another one. For our 40th wedding anniversary, Carrie and I went to New York City. And at that time, we had a church in our church, uh, in this church right here. There was a couple named Bill and Debbie Haller. Carrie and I liked Bill and Debbie Haller, and we we socialized with them some went out to dinner with them uh, on several occasions. They were seasonal residents, seasonal to Colorado Springs. And while we were walking up 6th Avenue, I wanted to do this whole thing right. So I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to fly to Philadelphia, then we're going to hop on a train and take the train and come up in Penn Station, because that's, that's how you should start in New York. So we did that. So we ended up in Penn Station, came up. Got on 7th Avenue, switched over to 6th Avenue, the Avenue of the Americas. And we were walking up towards a hotel. Um, and as we were walking up towards a hotel near Central Park, we uh, were stopped at a corner uh, waiting for the light to change. Now, as you know, New York City is a crush of people. In this city of 8,804,196 not to mention the visitors, all of whom apparently were at the corner of 6th Avenue and 42nd Street that night waiting to cross. But as I looked across the street to where we were going, there on that corner was Bill and Debbie Haller. They didn't know we were going to New York. We didn't know that they were in New York. But of all the things to see this couple, 
right there, standing right there in that corner, I was stunned. We went over and talked with them. Yeah, it wasn't doppelgangers. They were real people, Bill and Debbie. I don't think they were stalking us either. But the thing that Bill and Debbie Haller had in common with Ben Yoakum is that none of those three people were ubiquitous. Because there was, while they were, while they were near to us, there was a place, in this case many places, where they were not. They seemed to be everywhere we were, but just because they were where we were, there were, that, they went, they were not in many other places, like Florida. But with God, there is not a place where God is not. So God was condemning the false prophets in Jeremiah 23 of Samaria, the capital of Israel, which was the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah in the southern kingdom, and issued a chilling warning. And the warning was this. There is not a place where I am not. You false prophets know this. You can run, but you cannot hide. Now we say that, see the same idea again communicated in Genesis chapter 3. This is Genesis chapter 3 from verses 6 through 9. And I think you're familiar with this story, but, but I want to read it because there's some wording that I want to go over with you. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What were they trying to do? Hide, I heard it. They're trying to hide from God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, we look at that in our English translations and we say, okay, well, they, they went and found a tree and hid behind it. That's, that's not the sense of the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, the idea of God, the Lord God among the trees of the garden, it meant that Adam and Eve were running from tree to tree trying to find a tree big enough to hide them. And they never did. Finally, he surrendered. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam said, Okay, here I am. Adam said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. When you see in this passage, saw that I was naked, read, because I was exposed. Adam and Eve were exposed. They knew that there was, there was something wrong between them and God, and they tried to hide. Adam tried to hide himself, and Eve, which incidentally, you, you might say that the entire human race was trying to hide from God at that point, because they were the entire human race. But to no avail, because God is everywhere, and there's no place that God is not. Even behind every tree. The ubiquity of God means that you can run, but you cannot hide. Solomon received much the same message. David is wanting to build a place, a house uh, for God, a temple. He had his own palace and he thought, this is not right, that I should live in a palace and God 
uh, not have a place to live. And, and God said he was not the one to do it, but Solomon would be the one to build that house. And David's charge to Solomon, who was God's choice to seek David, was this. It's in First Chronicles 28, verse 9. Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of thoughts. Not, as, not only is God everywhere we can go, God is in here too. God knows everyone's minds and hearts, and that takes ubiquity. So God is everywhere we cannot hide. Number two, God is everywhere with equal awareness. It's not as though God's head is in North America and his feet are in Australia and his arm is in Japan. He is equally everywhere. Psalm thirty-three, eighteen: Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Where are those who fear him? Cast throughout the world. It applies to every believer everywhere. So God's eye is everywhere. It's, it's a metaphor. Those who fear him are cast far and wide all over the globe, so God's watchfulness is everywhere. And the passage that Rachel read a little earlier, Psalm 139, uh, and this is really the quintessential uh, proof text for this idea of ubiquity or omnipresence. Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, there art thee. Now, when, when we see heaven and Sheol, we think, you know, immediately of heaven and hell. And I'm not sure that may be the case. But it's at least this, that heaven is, is the place above the trees. Uh, in, in the Jewish cosmo cosmology, there were three heavens. That's why in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said that he was called up into the third heaven. The third heaven was where God lived. Uh, the the uh, second heaven was the place between the trees where the birds lived and the third heaven where God lived. So there was there are three levels of heaven. And so when he says, if I go to the heaven, if, if I go to heaven... If I go to that, that place way out there, and, and, and then I could go to Sheol. Sheol is um, used alternately for hell and for the place where dead people go into the ground. So whether or not he was referring to, to heaven as we think of heaven or hell, or if what he was talking about is as high as you can imagine, and as deep as you can imagine, it doesn't really matter. What he is saying is this. There's not a place in the whole universe that I can go where God is not. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, where's, where's the dawn? Where does the sun come up? East, right. You know, I heard a story once about Ted Turner. I was doing my a senior project on, on uh, CNN and Ted Turner. And they said, uh, if, if Ted Turner said that the sun was going to rise in the west and set in the east, you'd tell him he was full of beans, but you'd wake up just a little bit early to take a look the next day to be sure. 
But when he says, if I take the wings of the dawn, he's talking about the east. And if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, what was the sea? It was the Mediterranean. It was right there. And the remotest part, as far as they could see to the west, and as far as they could see to the east, even there, thy hand will lead me. God is everywhere. The full presence of God is everywhere. God's omnipresence is a statement of the awareness of God. Where is God? He is everywhere. Third point I want to make. God is everywhere. God's omnipresence, God, uh, though we don't always feel his presence. God is everywhere, though we don't always feel his presence. Habakkuk was uh, a prophet. And he was lamenting his sense of God's absence. Now, we think of a prophet as being, you know, pretty close to God. Habakkuk was not feeling that. He saw sin and injustice, violence and destruction. And he came to the conclusion that God had left and gone uh, and gone on vacation. And so he writes in Habakkuk 1, verse 2, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and thou will not hear? I cry out to thee, violence, yet thou dost not save. Why dost thou make me see iniquity and cause me to, to look on on wickedness, yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Habakkuk looked all around him and he said, you know, I'm looking and seeing about this God and I don't feel like God is here. His experience of the presence of God, he didn't have it. He saw only darkness. So he concluded that God was out of earshot at first. Later, in that in that prophecy of Habakkuk, he would give us a secret when we are not hearing from God. And I have to tell you that I think that that probably you all have been through that same sense. Where you have you 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 know you've heard that God is everywhere and in every circumstance, as Greg was talking about this morning. But as you think about it, you say, well, you know, if God can't do this then maybe God doesn't exist. Which is exactly what Habakkuk was saying. How long, O oh Lord, will I cry out to you and you will not answer? We, we have felt, I feel that way often. So, he gives us this secret, though. Um, it is this in Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by their faith. Now, I know that everyone is different and everyone's experiences are a little bit different, but this is a phenomena that I have heard several times. My story is representative, uh, and that is when I first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I was lit up. I was lit up. I was evangelizing Three days after coming to faith in Christ, uh, there was a movie that had just come to town right as I was coming to faith in Christ called Time to Run. It was a Billy Graham film, and it was explicitly evangelistic. And and uh, I said, well, I, I want to be involved in this. I mean, I had been a believer for like two days. And I said, I want to be involved in this. And so I started going to that film every 
uh, every night, sometimes to watch it two or three times during the, that period of time. And the theater was packed most of the time. And there was someone down front who was from the Baptist local Baptist church, and he was given an invitation for people if they wanted to, to uh, believe in Jesus, if they wanted to uh, if they wanted to pray with somebody, they would do that. I was one of those guys who went down the front, and people were coming to faith in Christ all around me. I thought, this is really easy. <laughs> I even went to this one couple, that uh, Tim and D. Peak. Uh, I said to them, why don't I come to your house and lead a Bible study? I had not even read the New Testament at that time. But I figured, how hard could it be? <laughs> And after all, I had a week in between lessons to to uh, to brush up on it. So, but I was on a spiritual mountaintop. I don't think anything could have been going better for me in my spiritual life. What I didn't figure on was the crash that would follow. Uh, a few months later, I was feeling very much like Habakkuk. How long, O oh Lord, will I cry for help, and you will not answer? And and what I came to understand. That that first rush of sweet emotion was the that was the start of a mountaintop uh, experience. It was a marathon that I'd have to run, and not a hundred yard dash. Uh, God had given me a shot of spiritual adrenaline, but then God took me to a place where I would need to replace that adrenaline with a deeper, more profound faith, and that was to come by way of struggle. And during those times, we don't feel the ubiquitous presence of God. We feel instead, maybe God has left me. But you see, that's where our faith steps in and takes over for our feeling. So we accept God's presence in the midst of struggle, we accept it by faith when the feelings fail us. Fourth, God is everywhere at any time as well as any place. God is not constrained by anything, least of all time. Moses, who started a new career at age 80. It's like, like in our church, Rex Sims. You all know Rex? Uh, what a great guy that guy is. I was on the phone talking to Rex, and he said, yeah, I just started a new business. He's 92 years old with cancer, and he's, he wanted to start a new business. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm thinking about getting into real estate. Well, at least it's not competitive. <laughs> but Moses knew something about, about time. Um, he, he wrote about it in Psalm 90, verse 4. He says, For a thousand years in thy sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night is, uh, I think, uh, is it three hours long? Somebody who's in the Navy can tell me that. Used to be four? Okay. Probably still is. I don't know, inflation, maybe it's seven. But the point is, a thousand years has just a few hours in God's sight. But why? Because God is not constrained by time. Uh, and, and you all know that God's timing is frequently not our timing. 
He has, uh, he has his own plan and his own time. Uh, God lives a ubiquitous life spatially as well as chronologically. God is always in the present. And that's one of the reasons why, why God names himself, I am. Not I will be or I was, but I am. And why Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, the second of the Trinity, always in the present. God is not bound by time. He is ubiquitous chronologically. So, we've said, God is everywhere. We cannot hide from his presence. God is everywhere with equal awareness. God is everywhere, though we don't always feel his presence. And God is everywhere chronologically and spatially. So, what do we take away from this brief study on the ubiquity of God? I think the first thing we learn is that there's not a place where God is not. So you can run, but you can't hide. You'll recall that the prodigal son did not live his prodigal lifestyle while living at home or next door. Where did he go to? A far country. He went to a far country. But apparently, God was right by him in that far country. And the burden of his own rebellion drove him back to his father. If you're ever in a self-aware, rebellious frame of mind, remember that you will hear God's voice wherever you are, whatever you are doing. Um, I laugh, and you probably can relate to this through your own kids. But uh, when my son was was young, uh, maybe three, somewhere in the three-year range, um, I, all of a sudden I heard quiet. That's, that's usually dangerous. So I went looking for him, and he had gotten into my medicine cabinet and was getting ready to put on some deodorant, which he desperately needed. And when, when he saw me walk in the bathroom, he looked at me and said, I want you to go to the other room. You see? Now, that's a little different because instead of him going to a far place, a far country, he was sending me to the far country, you see. But the point was still the same, that, uh, that w- we tend to separate ourselves from other believers. We go to that far country in order to carry out rebellious acts when we know that we're rebellious. Um, but what we learn from this is the ubiquity of God, that there is not a place where God is not. And God will find you there. Number two, faith, not feelings. It's interesting to me that God didn't appear to be with Adam and Eve by the apple tree. I, you know, I, I have this crazy mind, and when I started, when I wrote that down, that sentence down, I, the first thing that came to my mind, don't go under the apple tree with anybody else but me. I'm not sure that fits, but that's what went through my mind. Um, seemingly, minutes after, uh, after Adam and Eve took from the tree and ate, God showed up right then. Their faith kicked in even earlier than their 
meeting with God. They immediately sewed fig leaves together. They were trying to hide the rebelliousness from God who had, uh, who they hadn't felt his presence beforehand. That's why they were dabbling with the devil. They didn't feel God's presence there. And their faith, their faith failed. But now, they're overwhelmed by their guilty consciences, and all of a sudden, they're feeling things that they should have had to feel. Even when we don't feel like God is present, take that by faith. He is there, and he is not silent. I think the third takeaway on this is, our tendency is to want to make God small and manageable. You see, that's why the children of Israel made a calf out of gold. They didn't like this, this other God who descended on the mountain with thunder and lightning and, and a cloud of darkness. And, and even Moses said, uh, I am full of fear and trembling as he went up the mountain. So they went out, the children of Israel went out, and they made this calf out of gold. That might even have been, been a big calf, we don't know, but it was sure smaller than God. And they wanted to create something that was manageable. They wanted to create God in their own image. One who wouldn't impinge on their lifestyle. One who, who didn't make demands of them. One who was not so scary. So they made a golden calf. Idols are small and allow us to create God in our own image. So we want to localize God, either spatially or chronologically. This is not... Uh, Sunday, so I don't have to read my Bible. Or, or, uh, the, the people in Babel will build a tall tower to go higher than God. They were trying to ascend higher than God. That didn't work out so well. Because there's not a place where God is not. Uh, fourth, and finally, it, uh, what is remarkable to me is that while we tend towards constraining God for our own convenience in space and or time, but God has already done that. For, I, uh, for our idolatrous ways to be paid for, God constrained himself spatially and chronologically. Jesus, the second of the Trinity, while living in heaven, unaffected by either space or time, in love became one of us completely limited by space and time. And it took time for Jesus to walk from Jerusalem to Galilee. Uh, the last 18 hours were for Jesus exactly that. 18 hours. Yet, in flesh and blood, it must have seemed interminable for Jesus. And somehow, God only knows. But somehow, God imputed our sin to Jesus while he hung on that cross. And Jesus quite literally experienced hell on our behalf. Now, we're fond of saying that, that difficult, terrible experiences are hell. I think if we really understood what hell was, we probably wouldn't say that. Yet for Jesus, it was, uh, it was quite literally true that Jesus experienced hell. And, and this is the ubiquity of God. Some way, somehow, he paid an eternal price through a finite time in hell, uh, owing to his infinite nature. 
The physical torture and torment were a walk in the park compared to the hell he experienced and the unblemished Lamb of God, the perfect prophet who always spoke the truth. God is ubiquitous and there is nowhere that God is not. Matt Redman is a, is a Christian musician who wrote of the experiences of God's ubiquity and we know him from his song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, 10,000 Reasons. We love saying that song. It's a great song. He wrote of the ubiquity of God, God's presence in time when he, he wrote in that song, And on that day, when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul sings your praise unending. 10,000 years, and then forevermore. But he would write of God's ubiquity again in his song, Better Than One Day in Your Courts. I close by reading the lyrics to that song. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! For my soul longs and even faints for you, for here my heart is satisfied within your presence. I sing beneath the shadow of your wings. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. One thing I ask, I would sing to see your beauty, to find you in the place your glory dwells. My heart, my flesh cry out for you, the living God, your spirit's water to my soul. I've tasted and I've seen. Come once again to me. I will draw near to you. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The ubiquity of God means there's not a place, there's not a time when God is not. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your ubiquity. We thank you that you are indeed everywhere and all the time you are everywhere. You are always in the presence God, we pray that uh, that that truth of your everywhereness would uh, would be reminded to us every time we seek to go to that far country. Uh, God, keep us close by your Holy Spirit. Convict us of our sin and convict us soon uh, so as to avoid uh, the same mistakes that our predecessors even Adam and Eve, even those at the Tower of Babel, even those false prophets of Samaria and Jerusalem, uh, even of Habakkuk, God, we pray that you would uh, keep us from that because we know that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to end our time together here um, by singing Holy Ground. The words are on the screen. Thank you.
you receive God's benediction? For it is now unto Jesus who is able to keep you from falling. It's now unto Jesus who is able to present you before his glorious presence, spotless and with great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, honor, majesty, and dominion, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace. See you next week. Thank you.